0: Chapter 6 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 A Desert Ride Palm Springs to Seven Palms. After some months spent about the northwestern part of the desert, with headquarters at the village of Palm Springs, I made ready to launch out on a complete circuit with variations of the Colorado Desert it was within a few days of the end of may a much later date than i should have wished for the start the sun had settled down to his summer's work and came up each morning at full blaze in a merciless sky with that baleful mien which always throws me into anticipatory perspiration and which still brings to mind the morning burst of my old dominie into the classroom menacing bloodshot of eye and gnawing on his fingers like a famishing ogre delay had been caused partly by a long course of unsettled weather partly by fly-sores on the neatly striped legs of my burrow mesquite i had purchased her at banning the desert portal town lying in the neck of the san gorgonio pass where the railroad had dropped me in january we had had bickerings such as are bound to occur when similar constitutions are thrown together but on the whole the connection had been pleasant and i think profitable on both sides in many a canyon we twa had pooed the goins fine and in friendly tandem we had wandered monia weary fit of unprofitable sand and cactus and for my part i had no thought but that our fortunes would keep one trail for many a mile yet untrod i meant moreover to get mesquite a comrade when we reached the settlements down the valley for though her load for the long journey was no more than her accustomed one i wished to make the best arrangements so as to ensure reasonably fast travel also i hoped thus to have the means of carrying water in excess of the capacity of my two canteens one of a gallon the other of half-gallon size for my mount I had bought from an Indian acquaintance a small tough horse. Born and bred on the desert, he promised, or Francisco promised for him, to be excellent for my purpose. His Indian name of Pose, meaning little, did not quite please me with its inapt suggestion of flowery meads, and I rechristened him Kawia, partly in allusion to the name of the tribe to which his old master and therefore he belonged, namely the Kawia of which Cahuilla is a phonetic variant, but more out of a compliment to the memory of the loyal companion to whose virtues Clarence King does honor in a book which I am never tired of praising, Mountaineering in the Sierra Nevada. Let me say at once that in many a hard day's march and sometimes under necessity night's march to follow it a stretch, Cahuilla's secundus did full honor to his name. On the morning of starting, I had been up since four o'clock, and we got on the move while Palm Springs was yet rubbing its eyes. As we passed the reservation, there came the chatter of Orioles breakfasting with nonchalance on old Rosa's early figs at forty cents a pound. The racket checked while the thieves listened with bored amusement to the rattle of her warning bell. A kerosene can with horseshoe clapper hung high among the branches of the patriarchal tree this operated by Rosa's foot so as not to interfere with the fashioning of baskets or tortillas. It went on again the moment the tattoo was ended. Not so, I guessed, the slumbers of her neighbors. Turning northward, I struck toward the western point to the great sand hills that rise conspicuously across the valley. I had long been tantalized by their artificial shape, their mysterious changes of color, and the secret of what lay behind them whether palmy canyon windswept mesa or characteristic characterless plain i meant now to find a way in their rear more interesting than the regular road down the valley already familiar to the point of tediousness before we were a mile on the way certain doubts that i had had as to mesquite's good will toward the expedition hardened into certainty of trouble of all the crimes that are latent in these complicated beasts the most terrifying is that of lying down under the pack in my dealings with mesquite hitherto when i had either led her by halter rope or marched alongside or behind this had occurred once or twice but laying it to some momentary qualm i had passed it by now whether it were some sudden access of those traits from which the tribe is notorious awakened by a suspicion that we were bound on a long hard voyage or mere spite at seeing me for the first time riding while she was left to walk i cannot guess anyhow of a sudden i felt a check on the rope by which i was leading her tow line fashion and looking quickly around saw her deliberately gather her feet kneel down and compose herself in an attitude of luxury i dismounted and pulled She was uninterested. I shouted and feinted blows. She seemed coldly to smile. Rope ended. She put her head to the ground and tried to roll. And though the pack balked the attempt, I knew by disastrous sounds that ruin was rife among the contents. In the last resort, I hit on a goad. Prodded lightly, she grunted in contempt. Prodded urgently, she kicked but shivered. Prodded ruthlessly, usque al sanguinum, Reader, the case was extreme and the temperature of a good hundred and forty in the sun triumph she scrambled to her feet and stood quaking and defeated for the time another quarter mile and the whole business was enacted again a furlong and yet once more and in brief within the space of six miles which brought me to my first intended stop eight several battles were fought i cannot say and won for the strife was but intermitted, never closed. And on three occasions, the load had all to be thrown off and repacked. "'This settles it, my fine girl,' I said at the second repacking. "Kaweah and I can manage without your help, if this is an instance of it. The last of your disastrous tribe shall perish from the earth before I ever put faith in a burrow again.'" To dispose of mesquite finally from these pages, i may say that the next day i took her back to palm springs with no trouble whatever now that she was not outward bound there i left her and with no such relentings as stevenson noticed in himself on parting from the clastic modestine i sorted over my baggage cutting down to the barest needs and to the point where they could be contained in two pairs of saddlebags. one of these fitted at the horn and one at the cantle of my mcclellan saddle with two light blankets strapped behind the rear pair. The two canteens were necessities, and I carried also a light hatchet, a picket pin, and a single barrel 20-gauge shotgun, though this, useful as it was, I later discarded for saving of weight. My camera, of course, was indispensable. Thus equipped, I made a second start the circumstances of the former attempt had not conduced to enjoyment of the scenery or other natural incidents of the way now with peace of mind dearer than all i had leisure and mood for observation i was riding northward to the oasis of seven palms almost before the last studded pepper-tree outpost of palm springs was passed i was engulfed in the gray waste gray not alone of sand and boulder but also in the main of vegetable and animal life. Isolated bushes of creosote rose here and there above the level, enough of them merely to accent the general hue by momentary relief of glossy olive. Encelia and burrowweed made up the bulk of the plants, but by now the yellow stars of the former had burned to ashes. The latter makes little show of bloom and wears a perennial garb of gray. These dense-growing, round-topped shrubs afford the minimum relief of shade to the eye. The light is thrown back, unbroken, from their hemispherical surfaces, and all there is of shadow is kept for their own needs as if under a close-hulled umbrella. Of animal life, little was to be seen but scurrying lizards, themselves mostly gray, but some of ivory white. These are bony little goblins with sharp tails and a leer in the eye that comes near being devilish. A few late flowers were out, principally the ethereal, sky-blue Navarretia, with which one slowly but surely falls in love. Large white evening primroses were still blooming under the creosotes, and here and there the daisy-like desert star, Eremiastrum, showed like floral Pleiades. A desert willow in a dry watercourse kept a few of its frail, orchid-like blossoms, and the indigo sparks of the dyeweed weed were plentiful, but almost lost in the wide sea of gray. A month earlier, a page would hardly have held the list of the flowery multitude. Now, by late May, floral autumn had come to the desert, and this in spite of its being a season of unusually late rains. But desert color does not lie in vegetation alone. A few miles north of Palm Springs there rises a great dome of sand that for color effects I can only compare to a vast opal. I have seen it pass in a few hours from milky white through pale chrome, gold, ochre, rose, madder, royal purple, indigo, and duskier purple to almost black such is the enchantment this desert atmosphere works even at no distant range as i now passed near it the magic was as totally gone as that of hamlet's dull firmament it was a foul and pestilent congregation of sand atoms weary to foot weary to eye most of all weary to thought the embodiment of drought, hopelessness infinity of number infinitude of time this strip of desert lying at the eastern approach to the san gorgonio pass is a veritable blowpipe and sandblast the heated air rising under this fierce sun acts as a suction pump drawing from the coast a compensating volume and this pass forms the main channel for the daily interchange of sea and land air that gives southern california climate its peculiar quality It is by means of this regular wind current that the great sand hill has come into being. On most days, especially of spring and summer, to cross this tract is a highly unpleasant job. The force of the wind is phenomenal, and the steady, concentrated action results in launching volumes of sand with hurricane power against any object in its path. As an instance of the violence of this wind, I recall an average day of a former spring when a party, of whom I was one, stopped hereabouts for a meal. A sheltered spot was chosen, and a canvas sheet rigged against the wagon wheels for extra protection. And yet a cup of coffee set on the ground would be instantly blown over unless weighted down with a sizable stone. No amount of dodging availed to prevent every mouthful getting liberally sanded in transit. The conversation was lively, yet it was not a cheerful meal. On the present occasion, for a miracle, only a harmless breeze was blowing. It was instructive to note the effect of these sand-laden winds upon vegetation and even on rock. Wherever a fair-sized stone or boulder stood in the windway, some thrifty shrub, usually creosote or delea, crouched in its shelter, growing to leeward in a long streamer like a quickset hedge. Some of these bushes were from 10 to 15 feet long, with height and width strictly regulated by the size of their rock protector. Any attempt to extend by so much as an inch beyond shelter was rendered hopeless by that deadly sand scour. In other cases, where some hardy, low-growing shrub kept a foothold, A long dune had formed in the rear where the check to the wind allowed the sand to settle. Both hedges and dunes ran invariably to the eastward, following the course of the wind. For variety, here and there were creosotes with a grotesque look of being on stilts, the soil having been gouged away from the roots by the wind to the depth of two feet or more. Many are the quaint comparisons suggested by the postures of these wind-thrawn plants. A yet more impressive token of the power of the sandblast is seen in the scarred and corrugated faces of the boulders. The rocks hereabouts are all of the igneous kind, but often differentiated, as geologists say. That is, not homogeneous, but made up of strata of varying degrees of hardness. Many of these bear deep-etched testimony to the sandstorms of ages, the softer parts being chiseled away and the harder left in bold relief. They might have been antiques carved from fragments of the bones of Kronos. The same thing happens, of course, and in very brief time, to softer structures. The telegraph poles along the railroad used to need renewal constantly, being soon cut through a few feet above the ground by the beat of hail-like gravel and the fret saw of the sand. Now they are sheathed with iron." fragments of clear glass quickly take on the appearance of ground glass or dull metal upon everything living or dead the flying sand stamps its seal another noticeable thing by the by about glass that is exposed to the desert sun is that it quickly takes a hue of amethyst or lilac this tint expressive of light at its highest actinic power may almost be called the characteristic color of the desert I have often been forced to admire the beauty of the shadow tones cast by rock or tree, a thin, pure violet hue. Nay, I have even been charmed with my own image, drawn in this ethereal air color by my enemy the sun. Half buried in sand, I noticed some weather-worn timbers. They proved to be railway ties, with twisted rails still spiked to them. This was the mark of another destroyer, one that comes seldom to the desert, but is apt then to come in fury. It was water that had tossed this scrap of railroad miles from where it had been laboriously placed, either some rare, long-continued winter storm or, more likely, a sudden summer flood. A glance at the surrounding mountains makes the matter plain. Figure the certain effect of a heavy fall of water on those two-mile-high walls of almost barren rock. Like raging giants, the floods come leaping down, torrent reinforcing torrent, and burst roaring from the canyon gateways. What work of man's hands could withstand that assault, even when the shock is weakened by miles of distance? In the path of these desert floods, a railroad might as well be a bit of fish line. Here, at any rate, as I said to Cahuilla, who stood with pricked ears pondering at the sight, the age of horseflesh is not yet gone by partly hidden among dunes of sand bristling with a scrub of mesquite there is an oasis and a pleasant group of palms its name dating from a bygone decade is seven palms but there are now a score or so of the trees scattered about the place a cowboy acquaintance of mine years ago homesteaded the spot captured by the charms of a patch of dingy salt grass a pool of barely drinkable water, and unlimited quail, rabbits, snipe, and duck. Perhaps he had also an eye for a landscape which might move the toughest of punchers to admiration. His cabin, sheds, and corral, almost lost in the jungle of arrowweed, made up the picture of a typical desert home. Three slender palms in shadow cameo upon an amethystine sunset. Gave the touch of perfection which is seldom far from the commonplace. I made camp under a cluster of palms that grew in a hollow where a spring of alkaline water breaks out and spreads a white, unwholesome efflorescence among the arrowweed. It is one of the drawbacks of desert travel that the water, scarce at best, is generally charged with substances that not only impair the thirst quenching quality, but may have ill results on the health. One of the minor effects of alkalinity, which is an almost universal fault of desert waters, is a swelling and cracking of the lips. I have known hardy cowboys inured for years of desert life to be disfigured, hardly able to speak, and positively refusing cigars after a week or two of water unusually tough. I came near serious illness myself from this cause when I camped here some weeks earlier in the year. Yet this is comparatively good water, as desert water goes. There is another black mark against Seven Palms, the inhuman wind that constantly blows here all through spring and summer. After half a dozen visits to the place, I fail to recall one day uncursed by that harrying wind. Ordinary wind I can stand. A breeze is often refreshing, but this sort of thing is frankly beastly. It seems a sort of horseplay, aggravating, useless, simply silly. On this occasion, though the day had been decently quiet, toward evening the old nonsense began. The palms took up the regulation scream and rattle that had blasted so many a night's sleep for me, and by sundown you would have thought the Valkyries were in full career. I picketed Kaweah on the most sheltered patch of salt grass I could find and passed the evening in my cowboy's cabin with a phonograph that screeched its best yet failed to drown the racket that rained outside the locality is prolific in coyotes and in fact has supplied me with the trio of skins on which i spread my blankets when mother earth's ribs are my bedstead it must have been the songs of some of these vocalists that put me and kept me asleep for in spite of the uproar I slept calmly in my palm bivouac, till Kewea's shrill neigh called me at daybreak. End of chapter 6